I'm Ben Maddox from Five Games for Doomsday, and I choo-choo-choose the train rush for all of my train game news and reviews. All aboard! Okay, are we square now? Hi. Welcome to the train rush, your dilapidated potting shed of all things train game related. Now, as you may have gathered from our challenging new intro, we are experimenting with the format somewhat, trying to professionalise a little bit. However, it's not just limited to having some music at the front. We're also trying to improve the content somewhat as well. Now, we had some feedback from some listeners out there that there was an appetite for topic-based chat as opposed to just game title-based chat. And also that we could afford to let our episodes have a little bit more room to breathe. Maybe going to the topics with a bit more depth as opposed to prioritising expediency. As such, we have captured an episode on teaching 18xx to absolute beginners if you will and we have given it an hour and a half plus if this is one you're listening to on a commute or during your lunch break probably one you want to break into sections perhaps it's not one for you at all if you can't stand long podcasts like many folks tell me do give us feedback either way we'd love to hear from you whether this is whether you want to hear more of this sort of thing or less of this sort of thing and we can throw it in the tumblr and uh, make some decisions about the format moving forwards so without further ado on to the episode so, the first thing you're going to notice about today's episode is the absence of Dave Moss, uh, my normal co-host. Now, sadly, he's unavailable today for professional reasons, and it would have been really great to have him on the show for this subject, because he was the guy who successfully taught me 18xx and got the game system to land for me in a way that prior instructors had failed to do so. It would have been great to have shared some of his uh, thoughts and tips around this area. However, we do have a fantastic standby host, uh, John Cart, who has agreed to join the show with me today. He has been playing 18xx for circa seven months, which sounds a bit odd to have him give the instruction. However, he is close enough to his origins in the in the game, for want of a better term, to remember what worked for him and what didn't. And furthermore, he's also been the primary teacher in his local community in Derby for getting new people into the hobby and has had a good degree of success there. Further to this, he's also an administrator on one of Facebook's biggest 18xx chat groups and a notorious player online. So I shall let John expand on that introduction himself. Please, John, if you'll do us the honour. Thanks, Craig. Um, I have been playing for nearly eight months now, um, which doesn't sound like a huge amount of time when we're kind of playing with some players who have been playing for 40 plus years. Um, But I sat down with a friend of mine who'd made a copy of 1889 um, and we took a few a few turns and we came up to a stock round and it was a little light bulb moment where we both just looked at each other and we just started waxing lyrical about this game um, and then literally that evening I then bought myself a copy of 1846 which was the most readily available um, 18xx game that I could find because um, it was on Amazon um, and then I have ended up, I think, teaching more than more than 10 people now um, and all using 1846 as the starting post. Um, I find it's um, it's got we will talk about it later, but it's got some good ideas that are specifically designed for beginners. Um, and that's definitely how I the, the game I've played the most. Um, and I've mostly played it with new players. Um, so no, I, I think we've all gone through that light bulb moment when we first, you know, the people who are committed to this um, genre have all gone through that light bulb moment. And 
although you may have only played for a short period of time, I know having spoken to you online and having having played with you face to face, you've been playing very, very intensely. Your experience seems to mirror my own, where it's kind of this: I'll play this in preference to anything else, and sure, I'll play other games if this isn't available. But give if you can make four hours, I'll play a game of eighteen XX. Um, I think your I think your your diverse range of uh, well spread of games you're playing online on on RR18XX speaks for itself John yeah I I have accidentally maybe started about 18 games on there at one point Uh, I have tried to cut it down just because the sheer number of um, similar choices because if you're playing five games of 1830 at a time and you're controlling two of the same the the same company in two of the games it can get very confusing with what you're doing and so that is a nightmare which I hope thankfully isn't usually a problem when playing face to face sure sure oh, well we, I don't think we're at the level yet where we're trying to play two games at once although I can imagine some of the uh, like you say some of the old guard doing that at a conference playing two games of 18, 18xx at the same time I, I, we're not there yet <laughs> so right so I alluded to the top subject of this of this podcast which was with functionally teachers and notes we're going to be talking uh, observations on bringing new game new gamers into 18xx um what i want to make clear is it is not an exhaustive how-to right you're not going to have a one two three four five six process and by the end of it wang you've got a you know the perfect way to teach someone how to play 18xx this is more things that you should be mindful of potentially when you're introducing your friend who has not played 18xx before to the genre things that you should consider things that you may not you may take for granted because you're already in the weeds and you you can't see beyond the, the, the horizon of this thing and you take things take things you know for granted um this is just take the, an opportunity for you to take a step back and maybe be more mindful about the things you already know and how to how to impart that knowledge on other folks um I'm just going to talk to the premise and assumptions as well we're assuming you're somewhat experienced yourself um as I just mentioned there um we're assuming that maybe you're as committed to the genre as we are, in the sense that you can effuse and make something that on the surface of it could seem quite dry to folks that are nor- normally playing games about dragons or, um, or wizards or whatever. Nothing wrong with those. But when that's your staple, playing a game about trains and shares seems quite dry. So having the instructor being somewhat I don't know, into it helps. Um, the joy is contagious. Um we're also assuming that by listening to this podcast that you are functionally consenting to being willing to change your mind on what the right way to teach things are. You're happy to unpack some ideas um, and just be open to some of the things we're saying. Um, the last assumption, this is a key assumption, we're assuming that you're not bringing somebody who hasn't played games at all in. I'm going to say this now. If your gran has played Whist she's, and that's the only thing she's played, she's not. you'd never even consider introducing her to an 18xx game. The assumption here is, is that your audience has a significant experience in ga- of games, specifically Euro games. And the reason I say that is if someone has lots of experience of playing Warhammer 40,000 or something where you're chucking buckets of dice, they're not, it's not necessarily, they're not necessarily the audience for this thing and they're not necessarily going to have relevant experience for 18xx. Now, that's not to say, it's not to say they definitely won't, but if that's their only anchor reference, maybe you want to take them along some other titles first, some other primers, and we'll talk to those at the end of the episode. Um, John, do you have any thought, any other thoughts in terms of how we shape this episode? Um, I think it is a, um, maybe a move that is happening already um, because there seems to be a, a bit of a, an experience from people who've been playing 18xx in the mid-range that they've found it hard to get involved. 
Um, and I think when you've been playing for so many years, it is a lot harder to understand the zero experience point of view. And that's probably one of the advantages of being a fairly new player, but also teaching, um, is that I've, I can remember what it's like to learn and not to know. And I'm not, I'm hoping I'm not making the assumptions that they will maybe are being made by those, um, by those who've been playing for, for such a long time, which is such an easy thing to do, um, is forget where you, you started. Mm, absolutely. I mean, I'll say now, oh God, I promised I wouldn't use that word this episode. Absolutely. Tell you what, don't do the drink, don't do the absolutely drinking game this time, folks. Um, what I would say here is that I taught um, someone the other day and they have only played Euro games and I was shocked because it was probably the, fir- <laughs> it was the first time in a while I taught somebody. And, it's, and bear in mind, it was, I've been playing a lot over the last few months and my I would say my skill level and certainly my com- my comfort level, if not my skill level with these concepts has gone through the roof. And I was surprised at the things they didn't know. And that was partly what I or couldn't like grok really quickly. So, yeah, and this guy is a, basically he's as closest to a genius as I still currently have something to do with. You know, he's like s- supremely intelligent, yet some of these concepts just didn't land as smoothly as I'd expect. And that was partly what inspired me to want to capture this episode now was that sort of that, that, was a the title concerned, and we'll come to come to that in a bit. But b just kind of those that light bulb moment to use your term, John. Of wow, this stuff isn't intuitive. Um, it, it, you actually have to fight through this stuff, and maybe the teacher being sensitive to what things are easy to comprehend and what things aren't easy to comprehend would be useful. So, I guess if we move on to the move on to the meat of the episode, which is the thing, the observations. I guess um, I'm going to start. I'm going to suggest we start with the conceptual. And rather than the practical, the conceptual hurdles. So one of the key things I noticed when when I was teaching, and for the purposes of this, we're going to use a uh, fake name for this guy. Um, he's called um, Pill. When I was teaching Pill the game, um, one of the things that took a while for, to, to lock it was the separation between actor and role. Now, if you've done project management or worked in IT, you're probably familiar with this. But normally in board games, there's a one-to-one alignment between the actor and the role. I am a trader, and as a trader trying to make money, I make trades for my company. Normally, there's one company that I'm operating, one thing I'm operating as the actor. Now, in 18xx, as you, as most of our audience will be aware, it's one actor. I am the investor, you know, the the the, the, the speculator, for want of a better term, and I take on many roles. I can have multiple presidencies. I can be an investor in other people's companies. Um, and that's actually, and on a turn, I'm not just taking one turn, I'm operating on behalf of each of the companies I'm a director sorry, or president of. That is a huge step in my experience. John, does that mirror Does that mirror your experience when you're teaching new players? Does that normally make the cogs go? Absolutely. Um, and actually one of the um, kind of classic suggestions for teaching 18xx is to remove this one-to-many relationship and play a company as if you were just owning that company 100%. Um, and then the comp- and you withhold every time and the company's final money is your score. And that is the way that um, actually it started in 1829. There is a variant of 1829 which teaches the game in this fashion. And there are a few other titles that have this built in. Um, I've never actually taught anyone like that because I think 
it does dilute a lot of what I enjoy about 18xx and I think for me if I'm going to inspire somebody to play I'm going to inspire them on the things that excite me um, because actually the laying the tiles and the running the trains in the company um, isn't is the is the the bit I enjoy the least and it's definitely the share management and investing wisely that is what inspires me and that's probably just a preference on me because I tend to sell what I'm passionate about and so the the element I'm passionate about is the share dealing and that's that's how I then teach it um, no that makes sense that makes real sense to me John I mean I'm glad you've probably given us fuel for another episode there right because it's the first I'd, I'd really uh, noticed of those um of those teaching variants I certainly wouldn't teach it that way myself um, instinctively because like you say I feel like I'm teaching someone a third of the game and it's not even is it necessarily the best third of the game I'm not convinced um, so yeah I can see your point of view maybe one of us should go away and um, try that method to see if there's merit in it um, but the fact that, do you know what do you know what the fact that designers have come with a, like say a one-to-one act of the role variant does show does absolutely demonstrate that um, that's a hard thing for people to get their heads around. I think the other thing around it is that um, around these this actor to role thing, normally the actor and role um, thing is aligned with a simple set of incentives. I'm the actor, I have one role, and therefore I want to perform that role well. When I'm an actor with multiple roles, i.e. I am a player with multiple presidencies, am I necessarily going to be te- treating all my companies well? Now... The impact of that is actually more when you're on the other side of it. When the experienced player has two presidencies, I've got shares in one of those companies, or maybe in both those companies, and he's abusing the living daylights out of one of those companies. And then maybe he drops it on me. Now, that entire experience, to to my observation, is pretty unique to 18xx, that although I I am the president of a company, my my incentives as the actor aren't aligned with my incentives for the role. Um, now I'm, we'll, we'll go to title specific stuff in a minute, but some titles reduce uh, reduce the likelihood that you're going to have wildly different incentives between um, president, actor, and role. There, I think um, forty six, for example. I yeah, anyway, let's 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 talk about forty six when we get to forty six. Apologies, uh, John. Uh, did you have any experiences when it comes to um, I guess players being receptive to that? Um, I've had a mixed, I think a mixed bag. I think if you are the type of player, and typically if you're starting from a Euro point of view, um, most of the Euro players you tend to play with tend to be more Care Bears style, kind of, um, to quote Rado's um, phrase. And and so then actually because you've, if you're teaching the person to take ownership, kind of emotional ownership of this company, and then have something dumped on you or you are forced into a position that you're kind of you weren't foreseeing it can be a bit of a hit emotionally and I think that's often a mistake that people um, maybe make is the euros tend to be a bit fluffy and don't always allow you to uh, like for example player elimination is pretty much a no-no in most euro games but it is uh, kind of a core tenant in most 18xx games. No, no, I understand that. I agree. I, I think I think we've we've um, jumped onto another point there about interaction, right? Uh, the 18xx games allow a form of interaction that Euros typically consider verboten. 
And that's, you know, it's not a bad thing, right? It's part of what makes the genre so fascinating is that you can, in, the way you interact with people, uh, you can tear someone else down to improve your relative position, and that's completely legitimate. Whereas in most Euros, it would be, if it's not restricted by the game, it might be considered a social faux pas in a high, in a high proportion of groups. And yeah, I agree. It's a significant cultural hurdle to getting someone on board with this stuff because it's just completely alien. The first time it happens, they, you know, it it shocks them and can put them off. And I don't know how, I don't quite know how you deal with that challenge, right? I can try not to hurt you, but some titles don't afford me much of an option of doing anything else. Like, okay, I can purposely not make the move that hurts you but then what am i going to do is going to lay a tile to nowhere you know um but again i think we i think we're um digressing into the title specific stuff but i take your point i absolutely take your point that the type of interaction in this is you is you know, let's say it can be a turn off absolutely um just to add to that the the way i deal with that or at least attempting to deal with that emotional connection is during the teach you give warning upon warning upon warning. So when you're starting out, you say you, you, you introduce the game as a brutal game. You point out opportunities that could have happened after the fact, so you can't change it, that if they'd done this, this, and this, they could have done this, this, and this, and really build up and build up and build up until it happens and then they've had a couple of hours of preparation, um, so they aren't going to be surprised about it. And I think that's the least the way I've found to combat that element of being kind of caught with your pants down. Um, no, I think, that's, I think that's a good tip. I think that's a really good tip, John. The reason I say that is when you catch somebody by surprise with a negative interaction, it feels like a trick. Okay, it feels like oh, you were doing that for advantage and to try and make a fool of me. Oh. Whereas actually, if you warn somebody that these are the type of things that can happen, presidencies aren't yours forever. You have to protect them. Maybe, maybe mention the fact about the abusive president who strips the company raw. The challenge, though, is the teach is already quite long when you're teaching somebody from the ground up. When you're teaching somebody from zero, there's a lot to teach. So if you talk about every fringe situation. Um, then you're going to be sitting there for a while. But I absolutely agree, giving some degree of disclaimer is super, super important because you just leave somebody feeling very raw if you don't warn them about the possibilities of these things. Moving on beyond the actor role thing that I've laboured heavily, let's talk about the train abstraction. Now, I find it quite easy to define what a two train is, what a three train is in terms of mechanics. But for some players that are very literal, and they want to understand, oh, that's my coffee machine in the background, guys, apologies. If you hear a, a pumping, it's not a locomotive I keep in my kitchen. Um, they, the very literal players want to understand what a two train represents and why can't that bit of track be used twice. Um, I'll be honest, I've often just shortcutted this and said, just because. Okay. Um, we play lots of other other games that demand you to accept an abstraction as just an abstraction, and it's not necessarily logically grounded. In fact, I've um, I've heard some good definitions for it, such as you're running. A, it represents it's not a single train. It represents a service and a capability of service, and as such, you you wouldn't run multiple competing services for the same company over one over one length of track. Um, you'd um, you know you try back to back them to increase the range of your network, so to speak. Um, 
But for me, that's actually been quite a hard thing to convey because it has bearings on the root calculations as well. If people don't buy into that abstraction, then they get very frustrated when they're double counting their roots. Um, John, um, am, I, am I just talking poppycock there? No, not at all. It is a, it is a little bit of a just because. I tend to make a, make a joke of it um, and say, well, if they're on the same track, they might crash. Um, and that often just side completely side swipes the whole reason behind it um and then it, i tend to try and use a little bit of humor in my teaching anyway because it is so it can be quite dry um the what i tend to try and do especially to start with is and and i tend to try and gauge this from the person um and the quicker they get it the more i then step back but i tend to take quite a strong um, directional position kind of gu- guiding them in the early game um, not necessarily telling them exactly what to do but saying well you could do this or you could do this um, here are your options or here are a few of your options um, and make it more of a discussion so then the thinking process can be taught as well as the, just the mechanical doing it and I think that then equips that person to then make correct decisions to the point where they are winning the game, even if I'm by that point trying my hardest to make them lose. Because that makes sense. Yeah, that makes absolute sense. And I'll tell you now, when I've tried to take the step back approach, where you go, well, you know, you're a smart guy. I'm going to let you hey pill. I'm going to let you just have a go at this, and you like unpacking puzzles. You definitely witness the tyranny of the blank page. All right, there's so many options here, and I've got no idea which direction to take this. And it's a wide, it's a big decision space. So I agree. I think I like your method of walking people through a subset of options. Sure, you're only going to do it the first couple of times they play, right? I mean, you want people to be able to play independently, and hopefully, like you say, by the end of the first game, they're playing it for themselves, albeit with the living with the decisions you help them make early on. But I can see that. I can see the value in that because actually, because you know, sitting there in total cogitation lock. Not having a clue which direction to take it—that's no fun either. And often, one of the biggest decisions to make in some of these games is which company do I float first. And so, sometimes, if the person isn't able to choose or doesn't know what to choose, giving a little bit of a uh, objective for each company, um, like for example, forty-six with the Illinois Central has a lot of free track and has a bonus little extra payment um, to help that side or you've got the Grand Trunk who wants to make a quick east to west Um, all those kind of things um, can just be information that is not apparent to a new player at all and I wouldn't say is necessarily kind of railroading them to use the term Um, but it is giving them an opportunity to maybe give them an objective to then work towards if they want and that then kind of whittles down a lot of the maybe fluffier choices hmm okay so um moving on so moving on um, to the next subject point i guess i have written down here is capitalization money movement and revenue now the reason i bring these up as concepts is because very few euro games bring these words to the table and certainly don't apply them as mechanics a company having to have a certain amount of money to go online or money coming into a company depending on how many shares are sold or even just the splitting out of victory points for want of a better term because that's what player credit function is the splitting out of victory points via shares this stuff is quite 
Mm. It's quite dry, dry appearing anyway, even though it's one of the most exciting aspects of the game. But to someone who's never played one of these before, it, it, like I say, it, it doesn't necessarily seem that appealing. It, of course, taste is, taste is personal, right? So I'm just talking to what I've observed amongst a subset of people. Some people are super excited by this stuff. I certainly was. But I don't think you can expect people to be excited by this stuff. You know, I think I think if I had to place a bet, I would say most people are probably going to be dragged into this and realise the excitement of it by doing it as opposed to having a natural kind of gravitation towards it in the first place. Um, maybe you know different people, John, I suspect. <laughs> I suspect your, your experience might be different there. Absolutely. So I think... Um Having kind of come into 18xx fairly re- recently, I actually remember being told about 18xx games years and years ago, and going, "Oh, what are they? Google it." Oh man, that sounds so dull. And I think, unfortunately, as soon as you start talking financial terms, um, people, some particular people, just switch off, and there's very little you can do. And so I tend to avoid using the, those terms if. I kind of get the sense that it might be the turn-off for them. Um, and so I don't tend to talk about um, the difference between incremental capital capitalization and full capitalization. I tend to talk about just what this game does. Um, and so um, if it's paying directly into the company for every share bought, then that's, the, that's how I would say it. And it, instead of trying to say capitalization, which I think is a big word for giving you money, um, the, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, and it, it kind of it is a needless, a needlessly kind of. I don't think people should be scared of the word. Um, I think people can probably benefit from using that word and obviously other words that they might be scared of. But um, it definitely, I think, puts people just in a oh, this is too big for me. I can't, I can't handle it. Well, there's there's a there's a point when terminology is useful, right? When you're comfortable with a concept, then having a cant, <laughs> how appropriate, um, having a language for this stuff is great. But until someone is actually familiar with being spoken through the concept on a how would you speak to a five-year-old level, then there's no point throwing the multiple syllable word at them uh, over and over and expect it to land. I agree. Don't teach someone anything beyond the title you're, you're playing. Um, if you give somebody a historical background on the thing or oh, other games do this, yeah, sure. Okay, ultimately that's interesting. But in the immediate sense you're actually just taking away brain cycles they could be using to improve stroke enjoy the game you're about to play um i would say there's some things that some things around um this that are challenges specifically so when i've taught companies coming online after a certain number of shares um using an 1830 type game that's a weird thing that requires a bit of um unpacking with a player uh say weird it's perfect it's perfectly logical but it's it's they, people don't necessarily have prior anchor references for it. Um, the other thing that I would say is quite a challenge is certainly using an 1830 type. Shares in the bank pool pay the company. And again, I find myself falling on just because. And I can see 1846 of this, it feels quite logical. Shares on the company charter pay the company. It doesn't really require me to unpack it that much. People just accept that. But shares in the bank pool pay the company now it's a great mechanism and i love the the technical implications of it and the and the and the decision space it affords an experienced player but for a new player that's quite a confusing concept yeah it's not um, intuitive at all and i think it's easy to get mixed up in which game 
has shares paying in the market, which has, game has shares paying in the company, and which game has shares paying in the IPO. And that whole idea um, just, it seems to be the natural development that these, the kind of the more modern games are much more intuitive in that thinking. It seems to be the older games are the ones where paying in the market seems to be the way they've gone. Um, And the more modern titles seem to be either paying in the company or paying in the IPO or both in some cases. Um, so I, def- I definitely think that this won't be so much of a problem as games get developed. I think there's an interesting point here, actually, um, that you alluded to. And that is that, because you, your method, you you strip it back and just teach them the game they're playing. You don't talk about the genre. And I think that's great. I, I actually think I could stand to learn from that. Um, but it's interesting because it makes me think about the second the second game jitters for want of a better term as i remember teaching a friend of mine Stuart, his first game and that was fine went super smoothly because i maintained a uh, sort of a laser focus like you like yourself the second title where things are just slightly different and it catches them catches them unawares or shares pay in a different place or i can't oh, i don't have to pay delay tile or all oh, trains don't soft rust in this one there's you know there'll be changes between game a and game b it's actually hard i think it's almost harder for new players to learn their second title rather than their first title because we, we describe 18xx as a system and it is a system and actually when you consider that when you teach someone how to play let's just say 1830 then you can teach someone how to play a lot of derivatives in about 20 minutes of rule differences there's very few games that you that are that deep that you can teach on a standalone basis in 20 minutes right so there's definitely investment in a system but the second play for me or what's more to point the second title tends to be the challenging one when i'm teaching people Absolutely. And I think um, the we have an adva- a slight advantage here because typically the people we'll be teaching are other board gamers who are already used to playing games with specific rules. And so their minds are already trained to learn subtle rule differences. Um, and often people will be playing are tend to be enthusiasts of board games already. And so they'll probably have a collection of very similar Euros, but they're all slightly different. And so then that's one element that actually lends itself to that second uh, title. The other way you can do it is to either pick a title that's very different from their first or very similar. Um, and I think probably, like for, the, for, for example, the second title I've taught to somebody was 18CZ following 1846, which is very different, but still quite early on in their, in, in the kind of 18XX journey. Um, and that then introduced full capitalization, it introduced acquisitions, it introduced um, kind of other other ideas and multiple trains, um, but it's still a fairly simple game. And I think as long as you stress the differences enough and kind of keep it fairly, um, uh, as in a teaching game, a training game, a discussion game, then I do think it can work. No, I, no, you know, I think that's a great point you make there. Go wildly different or go virtually identical because that middle ground where it's pretty close, but there's some fundamental thing that changes uh, that, that, that changes the way you should play the game. And oh, whoops, you got caught out by it. That's yeah, that's that's poison. I think and, and no one. Here's the thing, right? These games, and I'm going to go now onto a practical hurdle. Okay, let's go. Let's let's. Do you know what? Let's go into our practical hurdles, and I'm going to lead with this one. 
when you make mistakes in these games, you are living because they're strictly deterministic and they have a positive feedback loop in there. You are living with the consequences of a bad decision for a long time. If I make a bad decision in hour one and it's a five-hour game, that's four hours of me sitting there having either functionally eliminated or suffering, bemoaning the bad mistake, the bad choice I made. Okay, I don't think it's much of a way around this, but I think we need to be sensitive to that. And as such, that whole try to stop people hurting themselves thing by giving them a framework to make decisions early on or making sure that you labor on the di- even if someone's doing the whole yeah 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 i want to get playing thing and most game gamers will say you know because they're used to playing games that run an hour and a half or whatever will say yeah let's just play and i'll learn as i go along to a certain extent you need to moderate that and say look that's fine but you need to be aware that your first game is then going to be worse performance than you might otherwise hope and for some gamers, like some gamers struggle with that, right? They, they're so used to, like I say, we're making the assumption you're teaching an experienced Eurogamer who are able to latch onto tropes and have lots of anchor references for the things they play. They're not used to being in the bottom 25% of performance. And it's really, and some people find that really, really tough. And I get that, right? They've invested years, if not decades, in getting good at a thing. And gamer is an identity label as much as anything else. So when someone is not doing very well, it's, a, it's an identity here as much as anything else. Um, yet, to be fair, I've met other play- gamers who absolutely revel, absolutely revel in adopting the, um, the the student position because they haven't done it in so long. So personal psychology is a factor here. Um, I've, have you had any, um, I guess, let's just uh, go on to, I guess, what's the term? There's a term for this, isn't there? Oh, God, I'm great with these terms. Um, let's go on to story-based um, descriptions. Um, have you had any any negative experiences like that, John, where someone's got upset? Um, I've not in 18xx. I did have a slightly awkward um, situation in Age of Steam, um, which is, again, another fairly unforgiving train game. Um, and one of my kind of friends who is um, considered himself a fairly heavy gamer um, managed to go bankrupt in the first two rounds. Um now that's probably partly my fault for having not maybe taught it as best as I could. Um, absolutely. And when we, I, I did warn everyone that it could happen, and then I think everyone was a bit surprised when it did happen. Um, and what I said actually to start with is, if it does happen, we'll just reset and start again because we haven't even got that far. But actually, this guy um, decided he would just sit out of the, of the game and ended up kind of just watching us and getting more and more morose about what happened rather than saying, well, it's a learning game, let's reset and start again. And I think that would have probably been a better way and it's unlikely he'll ever play Age of Steam again um, just because he doesn't feel like he wants to allow him, open himself up to that kind of ridicule. Now, we weren't mean to him at all. We didn't, um, we didn't push the point at all, but he clearly thought, he was clearly upset about it. Um, and I think with 18xx, I tend to allow, especially personal own mistakes, I tend to allow any number of mulligans um, from a gaming point of view. I don't tend to try and take mulligans myself um, as best I can. Obviously, there are some things sometimes you do, um, but I tend to allow people to take a mulligan. Some people don't want to take a mulligan, and absolutely that's fine. Um, but I tend to say, if you want to take a mulligan or take it back, or if we can try and fix it, um, then let's try and do it rather than you have a game that's just terrible and then you never come back again. I'd like to unpack, I'd, I'd like to unpack a couple of things you've said there. Right? 
I think you're absolutely right. Giving a positive first experience to a game is important because I've done it. I've done it, not, maybe not necessarily with, with train games, but I've certainly done it where I've had that really bad first game of something and I don't want to look at it again because it's not even for logical reasons. I know it's not logical. I know it's just because I had a bad experience of it and as such, I am going to sit there thinking about that bad experience throughout my next play of it and I just can't help it. And my mind is locked on that time I either did a silly thing or someone said a bad thing to me and I'm therefore going to detract from other people's enjoyment at the table right and giving somebody those mulligans if that affords them a positive you're not like you say you cannot realistically expect to perform anywhere near even even 25% of your capability on the first play of an 18xx game so if if we're assuming the first one's a learning game for the person you're teaching and you teaching them is an investment you're not playing them to have a, you know, a, 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 for want of a better term, an actual competition. You're te- you're investing time into them so you can compete with them later. Mulligans are the way to go, right? You absolutely, let people take things back and wind things back. If they issue shares out of sequence in 1846, yeah, sure, you're technically going to do that at the start of the round. But I don't want you to have to spend 15 minutes at the start of the round calculating exactly how much money you need. Let's just feel it out, and then as you get better, you'll be able to play more formally. That's fine. I agree. Wonder- yeah, wonderful to remember that it's really hard to calculate this stuff when you've never had to calculate it before. So expecting people to play it by just the rule, sir, is real tough. And maybe it's, maybe it doesn't actually achieve what you want it to achieve. Uh, you you can learn better gaming uh, gaming discipline as you've just got a better, when you've got a better grasp of the rules and the concepts, one thing at a time. Um, absolutely. I think um, the 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 whole investment thing and making and building players and building a community of players i've because i've almost started myself um with only one other person and we were learning together it has meant that there are no other 18xx players uh within an hour probably of me that i know about if if you're anywhere near north nottingham let me know um and so what i'm doing is actually finding people who are interested in the genre uh, who have always wanted to try it but never had an opportunity and then taking as long as it takes to get them hooked. Um, and so then I've that's how I've ended up teaching so many people because um, a few people have been interested. I have, um, I've been a little bit too enthusiastic with a few people and ended up um, kind of uh, <laughs> uh, train-ganging them into a game and that's unfortunately completely tanked and there's never, never a good... Um, never a good outcome if they're kind of cajoled into playing when, against their will um, and so I'd, I'd always now look for a willing and eager person and I think maybe even somebody who's even considers shock horror reading the rule book before you play because um, that can really help them understand when we do the teach as well yep absolutely enthusiasm on the part of the student for this is mandatory um, as we've probably alluded to all the way through, it's a school of hard knocks. You're going to get bruised learning this stuff. You're not going to perform. And th- therefore, you have to want to do it, right? If you're doing it as a favour to someone and as a favour to, you know, oh, yeah, all right, I'll entertain John. God, train John. Kyle will shut him up. And then I have a terrible time doing it. Of course, I'm never going to come back for a second play. Right now, I'm, I'm sure maybe you roll the dice and someone who, who didn't know they wanted to play train games now wants to play them. But I wouldn't... If I had again, if I had to lay a bet, I would say that most that will mostly lead to failure. Um, 
going back to, I guess, the agenda, believe it or not, we agendarise this stuff. Crazy, I know. Um, let's, we're just going to go back to some other practical hurdles and um, cover them off, and then we'll go into specific titles. Um, I'd like to talk to the... Um, and this actually does tie to the point we just made about will, you know, willing participants. The upfront download for this stuff is really, really long, right? You know, I think when you have... Although we talked about the deltas and the you know, differences between titles being 20 minutes once you know the base principles... Covering the base, base principles, in my experience, takes about 45 minutes. And that's with me rushing it and not providing laborious examples of every fringe case. Um, that's a lot of time to be paying attention to concepts that you're not intimately familiar that you don't have anchor references for. Um, I, I, was, I've, I, had, I had a teacher the other day where someone was starting to look at their phone halfway through and I knew we just need to take a break from the teach or I need to use my teacher voice or whatever to get, to, to get them to lock on again. I don't think you can, and that's the thing, right? I don't think you can underestimate the amount of amount of buying required from the from the from the learner, from the student, to get to the end of the teach of every concept, of every phase, of every option, and have ingested it all. In fact, I'm almost, well, to be honest with you, I almost don't think it's realistic. I like your kind of tutorial approach, John, where you go through it all on the high level, and you you you, you know, you may, maybe you go through it all in every level, but you just you get to that 45 minutes and you go stop. We're now going to play it through, and I will help you for the first bit of the game until these concepts land. There's no tricks here. I'm going to play with you for the first part of the game. I think that's, I think that's a very strong way of doing it. Um, but just to just to reiterate, let's put, like I say, third time I've said this, they are learning a system, right? So the the way the I guess the payoff that you're kind of leading towards, and you should, I think you should probably articulate this, is if they enjoy this game then they can play the world of train games and the next time they learn one, it will take them 25 minutes and they'll have learned a whole other game that's super deep. It's not like when you learn a Euro, for instance, when I learned Lisboa the other day, and I'm sorry to use a reference, it's not a train game, but the things you learn in Lisboa, which is a great game, they're pretty much unique to Lisboa. My knowing Lisboa does not help me with the gallerist. It does not really help me that much with um, with Concordia, for argument's sake. It does nothing for my playing John Company it's very, very unique. Whereas at least when you learn 18xx principles and even title-specific things, there's some degree of cross-pollination there. Oh, I feel a bit dirty. You're talking too much Euro. Um, so the only other thing I'd probably add is don't underestimate um, who else is at the table. Um, and often I try and be very intentional about who's learning and who's also at the table some people are naturally very good at being that teacher's assistant for lack of a better word um, often because they do the teachers as much as I do um, but often I try not to have the new players outnumber me mainly because um, typically somebody who knows the game is able to maybe give uh, an explanation in a different manner that helps that person understand or give them a little bit of guidance so then the full burden is not on me, especially if we're teaching more than one person. Um, and I tend to try and never have more new players than uh, veterans. Um, even if that person's only, even if this kind of colleague, for lack of a better word, has only been played, has only played once before, they're still one more game ahead of this other person. Um, and I tend to try and use that approach as well uh, and do it as almost like a team effort. Um, otherwise, it can actually get fairly um, mentally draining to be playing kind of multiple hands. Um, 
and also never like they might catch a mistake that I've missed or something like that or uh, I try and work as a in a concert all drama mode here I disagree with you on one point oh yeah excellent I, I, I know it's good it's good when we disagree um, I found I found that having someone at the table who was too close in experience to the learner meant that the learner started seeing it as a competition and you know and a, a competitive game as opposed to a learning game so I, when I was teaching the other day, I was functionally teaching two guys who play in the same same circles, and there's maybe one game difference in between them, and they actually cared about their relative performance. Now, of course, you should care about your relative performance, but their focus was on the relative performance as opposed to learning and um, ingesting these principles, and they came away unnecessarily bruised for what's functionally a random outcome. Right? Neither of them really knew what they were working towards. Um, from you know, at, at the beginning, so one of them put them in himself in a position of very strong advantage, and because of that positive feedback loop, that snowball effect, they of course outperformed the other player. Well, sure, that's fine, but did the other player learn the game better than them? Did the, did the other play, player develop an appetite for the genre that maybe player one didn't? That's that's the the measure you should care about on your first game, not how you perform versus someone else. Did you have a good time? And but when when you have, I think when you have a group of very experienced players or or, the, or a significant gap, let's say, and one new player, their expectation is that okay, do you know what? I'm going to get a lot of help from people. I'm sure my performance might not be entirely my own because people are going to give me steer. But I'm also not expecting to win. It's not it's not realistic to expect to win, and it's no reflection on me if I don't. Um, that's my experience. I mean, obviously, these things are entirely unique to the person you're dealing with. We're all individual. We're all absolutely individual. Um, but I did have that kind of two people that are too close to each other backfiring. I guess on the flip side of it, the positive was when I was explaining something to to one of them and it landed well with them, but not the other guy. They were able to articulate it in a way, you know, in a different way. Like you say, I do agree that saying the same thing over and over in exactly the same way achieves nothing. Having another voice, bit experienced or someone, you know, someone new at the table to help impart that knowledge is hugely valuable. I agree. They are the other players are resources as well. And that sounds really, um, that sounds really um, quite macabre, doesn't it? <laughs> so I would like to make one little caveat about the co uh, having the colleague there. I would probably um, have maybe a little discussion or chat um, if I felt that was necessary. So if it was maybe a very new 18xx player um, and tend to kind of get them on board with teaching this other person. Um, And I think that's probably then helping them with their own game. And that tends to be how I teach anyway, um, to get somebody else to teach the third person can that that can then help um, this the middle person learn? Um, so I, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't expect necessarily competition, and that does that does kill um, teaching. It tends, well, at least tends to, um, from my experience. And I've fallen foul of that as well as the teacher. That I've ended up getting too involved in the game, and I've ended up making mistakes, um, and actually then screwing somebody and completely forgetting that actually I'm supposed to be helping this person and teaching them. And I think I tend to let go at some point in the game and then just let things fall but sometimes actually maybe I'm making mistakes and letting go too early almost 
I think, no, you're right. Having that third person, let's assume it's a three-player game, playing a game of crushed a noob, is, is not helpful. Not helpful in any way, shape or form. At least if you fall into the pattern of, I'm going to be competitive, oh, oh dear, you can apologise afterwards and you can and you can even talk, you know, because you can apologise on behalf of yourself, um, genuinely. But you can also talk through those crushing moves you're making and why they're important in terms of the system and what lessons you're trying to impart because you've take you've willingly taken on the mantle of teacher but if the per- the third person is playing hyper competitively and just crushes someone with some trick that they didn't for- didn't foreshadow or doesn't don't explain in arrears that's just does nothing for the new player um so let's move on to the rules and that aspect of it and going on to some of the I guess the qualities of the game that are challenging um, the game's strictly deterministic. We mentioned this earlier. Uh, you'll keep hearing that term in the podcast. Uh, there's no randomness in it. One of my favourite things about 18xx is the fact there is no randomness. Everything can be read above the table, um, and everything is in principle forecastable. It's it's a complex system, which makes it hard to unpick. But in principle, in principle, it's there's no randomness apart from input random in some games, as we've mentioned in other titles. Um, the thing is that absence of luck makes it hard for new players. Because luck as a game design quality or tool um, allows novice players to feel like they're in with a chance of winning. Even if they aren't playing well, maybe luck will pull them back into it and it will keep them engaged in the title. That absence of luck is actually an impediment to getting new players involved in some ways. I mean, don't get me wrong. Some players will love it and just go, well, you know, I don't want a game that involves luck. But the, you know, you know, that's the. I guess that's the end goal, right? Is they get good enough to to not need the luck. But when you're being crushed in your first game, should you be playing with the wrong people, you'll you'll be hoping for a jack to come out the deck. You know, um, I, I think that's something we just need to recognise. And I guess that its brother, it's being strictly deterministic. There's no rubber banding in this. There's no unlike a lot of Euros where there's a catch-up mechanism for players at the back to be pulled to the front. Oh, you've got the least victory points, therefore you get a bonus five gold at the start of the turn. There's none of this. There's no rubber banding in this, typically. Um, apart from the rubber bands the players create themselves via collusion. Fred's doing well, so we need to block Fred's runs, otherwise we're just going to be crushed. We'd call this collusion in um, in normal life. And guess what Euro players typically don't like? Collusion. Um, depends on the culture. Sometimes it'll be a case of whale on the leader. But if you... It'll be tend to be a kind of, um, for want of a better term, a very shallow conversation of Fred's in the lead, so we should really be thinking about Fred. Whereas the kind of collusion necessary in 18xx, in my experience, tends to, to help um, pull a leader back in, tends to be, well, if you buy his shares and I buy his shares and then we all sell his shares, it tends to be very detailed planning about where and how you're going to stab them in the back. Psychologically, that's quite difficult for Euro gamers, in my experience. Absolutely. I think um, this is where the gift of the gab um, comes in um, and being able to convince somebody to join you for a season um, and then potentially stab them in the back is absolutely part of 18xx completely. Um, And I think almost um, this is maybe one area that isn't heavily utilised, at least in the games I've seen, Um, partly because when you're teaching, this kind of conversation can't happen because people are being much more open about their motives um, but in a in a kind of a higher level game I played recently, 
um, there were discussions about whether gentlemen's agreements uh, are binding. Um, and actually, in obviously the 18xx rules, of course, they're not. But I think a lot of the old school players um, would would respect them and wouldn't. Um, and I would never actually have considered even making a gentleman's agreement um, with somebody because then I'm I might screw them over later potentially. Um, I would never even consider asking. But actually, it was put to me that actually, if I had asked, I could have had it in a certain way um, and that was an interesting uh, direction that's probably a uh, topic for another podcast um, but absolutely the collusion element so especially when you get to the higher player numbers when you can't um, you can't actually float any company at all unless you collude and work together um, it certainly uh, makes for some interesting games mm. um, I'm going to skip a few points on the agenda specifically because I think we've covered them earlier so I'd like to talk to two more points when it comes to practicality and then we'll go on to some title-specific stuff in terms of using them as examples for a better term of the points we've made. Um, I'd like to say that this 18xx, as, uh, as, as described to me by Clearclaw, is a war game, and I don't, I don't disagree. And as such, like many war games, it's filled with negative interactions. Like I said earlier, it's absolutely valid to cause your opponent to underperform to win the game as it is to try and achieve peak performance yourself. Um, this, when you're teaching someone a game like this and they haven't, and they're not from a war gaming background, that can be quite rough. And I guess it's one of these games, it's a game where you have a stick and you can either be beating someone with a stick or be being beaten. Games that involve beating with sticks are much better when you're the, are much more fun when you at least feel the capability of wielding the darn stick as opposed to just being a, a butt that's being thrashed all the time. Um, and I guess the partner to this, that point is that about holding back when you're an instructor, do you, I mean, this is a question, it's a question rather than a point. Do you take every opportunity you can to block a new player's progress or do you hold, and so for instance, putting a station token somewhere bad to them or selling their stock to dilute their value so you can float your thing? Or do you moderate yourself and only do it after you've warned them a few turns ahead? Or, okay, now now they're out of the, you know, it's not going to really hurt them if I do it now, so I'll hold back. Are you teach? Are you really teaching them what the system has to offer if you hold back? Uh, I'll be honest, I think that, well, I'll just express my position. I think you have to hold back to a degree, but if you hold back entirely and just build a little circular loop that only runs 10 revenue the entire game, that doesn't do anybody any favours either. I think it's it comes down to your choice of teaching title. Um, with 1846, which is my teaching title of choice, at least so far, um, it has that doesn't really lend itself to share trashing um, anyway. So that's ne- that's not really a viable option. Um, I think. Sure, sure. Sorry, sorry, John. Sure, I agree with that. But I just want to make one point. Um, stationing does feature in that, and that's an example I would say is applicable to eighteen forty six. Sorry to interrupt your flow. Sorry. No, no, no problem. Um, and I, absolutely, I do. I do think there are um, there are things you can do to screw each other over, um, and I think it is if the choice that you're making benefits your company as much as it is screwing somebody over, then that's a valid choice. If it's hurting your own position just to mess with somebody more, I think that's probably a little bit beyond people's acceptance threshold. 
Um, and that's obviously a fine line, and it's very, very hard to kind of put a thought, like a, um, uh, a definition on that. But I, th- I tend to be like, if the route I'm running or the station I'm putting has an active reason and benefit for my company, it might also screw somebody over, but that's just a side benefit. I will put the station down. If it is purely to cut someone's route just in half, and actually I don't need to do it, I probably wouldn't take that move. Um, and I think it's it's that kind of, if it's benefiting me um, and maybe screwing them over, then all I'll say is, I'm putting this here, it is hurting you, but it's actually benefiting me more. And usually I tend to find, especially 46, those kind of decisions are more effective than fully just hurting somebody else because they don't tend to be very rewarding in 46 particularly. Oh, no, that's a great, I think that's a great lens to look at it through. I think if you use that as a rule of thumb, um, you generally land uh, teaching experiences quite well because people accept being hurt as a consequence of you trying to achieve something. If you're saying, I'm going to cut off my nose so I can stab out, st- so I can stab out both your eyes, then with it, then um, yeah, people are less receptive to that. It, 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 that's certainly more alien to them from coming from the Euro background. Um, I guess as well the other thing let's go let's go into titles I think we're going to organically go into this now you've mentioned we've mentioned 46 enough I think 46 is quite cool for want of a better word in that it gives experienced players something to do constructive in the absence of um, jousting with the opponents right so I like 46 because one if if as a new player and as a new player as the teacher I can choose to try and t- do some weird strategy where I try and make a company work a way that maybe it's not, you know, not one of the classic textbook strategies. I can do that rather than meddle with the other player. There's something for me to do that's constructive that isn't just, like I say, me making a, a 10 revenue run- roundabout. Um, I think that's one of the ma- big advantages of 40, uh, 46. And as such, that's how you hold yourself back. You don't necessarily hold yourself back on individual plays, but you hold yourself back with kind of like a wider overall approach. You don't play the competitive grunk strategy. You know, you let them try to play the, com- the competitive grunk strategy, maybe if they observe it, or you ident- you, you certainly identify it, but you don't necessarily do it. Um, that's sort of a macro-level governor, for want of a better term. Um, but I'm actually talking to your specialist subject, John, which makes me feel a bit cheeky. So would you care to go through some of the things you like about 46 as a teaching title? And I may do the cons on it, or my perceived cons. That's a good way. I'll tell you what, I'll do the 46. If you do the 46 pros, I'll do the 46 cons, and then we'll flip that on its head for the 1830 likes. Um, absolutely. And I'm, I'm no way near an expert on 46. Um, I've just enjoyed it. Um, and I think, um, I'm not sure I would necessarily want to play it forever um, and just play that. Um, I certainly could, and you certainly have enough options and enough choices um but i think i'm too excited about the genre to ever say that um in earnest um i think it has a few key um design choices and it's interesting because tom um lehman the designer actually states these as his design premise when he started designing um so he wanted a game that was beginner friendly but also had something for the um kind of more experienced players so it wasn't completely boring um and um so he managed he i think he's done that incredibly well um and so he the main areas that he wanted to do was he wanted it to be a fairly quick game at least gets it feels like it gets off the ground very quickly and that is certainly true 
so it gets to buying you can buy companies immediately into your um, into your major com private companies into your major companies immediately you often get to um, to phase three um, in the first OR uh, you can actually get into phase um, phase four into the first OR if you really push uh, get the right get the right shares and everybody um, everybody issues shares you can do it it's hard it also means that you're very likely to have a bankruptcy in that first round which also then uh, changes the game a bit um, the other the other aspect is you have um, a gentle rusting or soft rusting where the trains have one more run after they've rusted which just gives new players who are maybe not expecting all the trains to just vanish uh, especially the twos they seem to go incredibly quickly um, and so then they have one more opportunity to maybe withhold to then be able to buy the next train so that really does um, mitigate a lot of that bankruptcy risk um, you have the um, the other the other main um, hurdle for play for new players when they're coming into 18xx is what do I bid on how much do I bid on it in the initial auction for privates and obviously the way Tom has got around that is by doing this private draft where you pay the face value so there's only the face value to pay that's the only decision you have to make which one you choose um, but interestingly enough actually I find the draft incredibly interesting every time I play it because the combination of privates you get the fact that it's um, kind of in it, almost a euro way that you set up differently for the different number of players means that the privates you're getting is always different and then, then the draft and actually that's where the interest comes for the expert player um, you then got the um, the ability to half pay um, and actually then um, you can actually keep some and still pay out and you're not losing share value for that and so you can play this um, kind of safe mode I actually have I started doing a lot of half playing half paying out and actually the more I'm paying the more I'm playing these games the less and less I'm using the half pay option I'm, I'm finding that it's either more effective sometimes to lose one jump on the share like to go backwards once but get a bigger payout um, than maybe um, not go up enough uh, with a half pay and only get um, a small amount in the company but again that's uh, situational based um, the other uh, interesting element is it's a very very small map in the sense that you're able to lay two yellow tiles a turn um, or an upgrade on a yellow um, which means that the explosion on the map happens very very quickly and things develop very very quickly um, the linear stock market um, is in some senses harsher because um, you, there are no ledges, um, there's no protection for you, but the way they mitigate that is by when you're selling, only the president's selling um, reduces the stock value um, each time, and if you're uh, anyone else, it just drops once. Um, and all those kind of things really bring a, um, a very, very um, safe environment for a player, but that has, still has interesting 18xx choices which is a great, that's why it's such a great introduction. And I think um, we can probably go on to the cons because I'm sure there are quite a few. Well, I wanted, I wanted to interrupt you, but you uh, had such a good flow. I'm sorry. Right. No, you're fine. You're fine. Don't worry, please. Uh, I, I, I'm 
loathe to introduce to interrupt someone who's flown so smoothly. No, the I agree with you. The privates are interesting, and I think the draft and the fixed prices make sense. My one issue with this for a first title, where that draft aspect, it makes it all but impossible to offer advice on what to pick, because players come into this with a certain expectation of what a draft is. I'm not to tell anybody what's in my hand, because it will upset the next person who picks, right? And they've got his hand of four options. Maybe some of them are numbers, right? So you can discount those. But let's just say they're all privates. And they've got, and they're still there with that tyranny of the blank page, having no idea why something's good or what you might do with it. So I think well, something when you're using this as an intro game on someone's first game, you almost want to open hand the draft. There's, it's, it's, I know that sounds crazy, but if you remember it's a learning game, not a competitive game. And if somebody's sitting there for 10 minutes on their opening hand of the draft, trying to work out what to pick. Where's the fun in that? I, I can't, I, as a, as a learner, I certainly wouldn't feel anything but pressure. You, you certainly need to say to them, look, if you choose to open hand and tell me what you've got, so I can offer you advice. That's cool. Nobody else at the table is going to get upset because those cards are going to be going, being shuffled and going to the bottom of the deck anyway. It doesn't inform, you know, it, yeah, sure. It gives me some information, but it's not, it's not like world shattering. And I'm not looking to put this on my big, on Craig Taylor's big scoreboard of fame at the end of it. It's a learning game, right? Um, one of the things I do like about the privates, however, um, I think, although I'm going to sound like a bit um, contradicting myself here. I do think when you take the time to read the card, they offer you some steer as to where you might want to lay track and which companies might be of value to you. I think they're quite immediate in that sense. So, you know. Yin, uh, yin, uh, yin and yang there on my view on the privates yeah absolutely and i think one of my um one of my main focuses on teaching the game is um explaining the privates enough so the draft works um i have i haven't ever done a full open-handed uh, draft but i have um kind of peeked at someone's hand and said here are here are the here's what you should be thinking about i'm not I never try so and cheated. tell somebody what so you've, to do. So you've, so you've cheated, John. You've cheated. That's what you're telling me now. Yeah, absolutely. You've peeked at their hand. Absolutely. Yeah, good, good stuff. Um, I tend to cheat in the sense that I make it a lot harder for me to win the game. Um, the other element is um, just allowing people to just choose whatever. And then once they've chosen, because I think typically the privates are fairly well balanced. Now, obviously, I think the Michigan Southern's probably a little bit overpriced, but it is still quite powerful, especially tied in with the, the Grand Trunk. But the um, so the, they tend to all be fairly useful and fairly balanced. And so then once somebody's picked their privates, you can then, that then sets them up and then you can advise them with those choices in what to pick, um, maybe what which companies to float first, or what directions they should be looking at. Um, I have had it where some some games people haven't really used their privates at all, um, but it's not really seemed to impact the game very much. Um, and I think people unintentionally don't use them and then actually it ends up hurting people because, say, for example, the blocker spaces, the ones that um, the Michigan Central um, and Ohio and Indiana or whatever, those two can often stop some progression inadvertently regardless of whether that person was intending to or not. Um, and I think that maybe is um, quite an interesting way he's designed it. Well, talking to, talking to that, right, I think this is another positive thing about as a learning title. Every company and every private is viable in its own way. So if a player just goes, oh, I'm going to start a random company, they're not going to have 
I'll give you an example. So we're familiar with the concept of a brief briefcase companies or companies that are structured in a way where they have great value late game but poor value early game, or maybe it's a company of desperation. There's none of those seem to feature in 1846. Whatever you start has give has got some sort of chance. Sure, I'm not going to say they're all identical. They're not. If the grunt if the grand trunk is left unmolested and that you just let that guy build east to west and don't try and get station tokens in there, they'll do very well, disproportionately well. But by and large, whichever company you start, you're going to be able to do interesting stuff. You're going to make some money. You're going to have some fun. Um, I'll flip to 1836 Junior very quickly. Um, a friend of mine on their first play started um, the Lime Green Company that's at the north of the map um, that doesn't generate revenue very quickly. I'm, I'm almost convinced that you wouldn't run it unless you were running HSM as well. Um, you, uh, the red company that features in Amsterdam. It's a company you run in concert with something else. They started it as their sole company and as such had a wretched experience because when it came to the next share round, they didn't have as much money to buy shares as other players. It's that whole, they weren't benefiting from the positive feedback loop thing. Um, what I think, going back to the thing we're actually talking about, 1846, I think this title is very nice in that it's hard to make a bad decision with which company you float. Absolutely. And I think the probably the, the weakest company um, is arguably the Chesapeake and um, the, the Chesapeake and Ohio, the, the light blue one at the bottom. Um, but that's often not in games unless you're playing a five player. And actually you tend to find that you don't even notice it, it's not there. Um, I have never managed to make it work. I think it's probably a challenge for my next game, actually. Um, and um, the other thing to think about is when you are discussing the privates... Um, talking about synergies um, and we've kind of talked about that in a different podcast I think um, talking about synergies is really key to helping people understand what works well together so pointing out that the um, the Grand Trunk works really well with the Michigan Southern or that the Big Four really helps the um, Illinois Central explode out of the uh, southwest um, and that the um, mountain regions and where they are and which companies need them and all those things happen I tend to try and drip feed in during the um, discussion about the privates um, and then people can then feel more equipped when they have the draft and again um, I always tend to allow um, a fairly open discussion about choices anyway so if people want to discuss what their choices could be I tend to use that because I think I'm not a good enough player to take advantage of the information I'd be getting anyway. Um, and that's probably an advantage maybe of being such a new player myself. Because um, it wouldn't really matter how what's in your hand because it's going to go on the bottom and shuffle anyway. So it's not going to make a difference. Are we going to talk about the, the cons of 1846? Yeah, let's do that. Let's, let's do that. Let's blast through them because there's not that many. And then we'll talk about another title that I've used as a teaching teaching title. Um, so 1846 cons, right? For me, and tell me if I'm talking talking out of my um, steam pipe here, because um, I'll admit, I, 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 it's not, I'm not the biggest fan of 1846. It's that I played it a lot when I was learning, and then I was excited to try other things, and as such, had weirdly negative memories of 1846 that I don't think were entirely true. I think they were more situational. Um, a few of the rules aren't applicable to mainstream titles. So there's um, things like paying, paying for every time you lay a track, it's weird you teach them someone it doesn't matter when they're just playing 1846 but then when they play it it's that whole second title thing why am I not paying to lay, to lay, to lay track mm-hmm. for me that's a thing you kind of need to be mindful of um, 
It's a minor thing though, minor quibble. I won't I won't overlabor on it. Um, calculating revenue and value jumps is a bit more complex because of the options you have. That half pay, that yeah, you know, like I say, this game's dripping in safety mechanisms to allow a player to correct the mistakes they've made. And these same these same things are still useful to experienced players because they can use them as a tool to gain advantage. But by the by, um, the point being is having those options on having half pay, um, and the um, also the like I say the and its relationship to the stock value single jumping, double jumping, and triple jumping, it's quite a complex thing to convey. Um, when you look at the stock movement forward, back, up, down on um, a normal 1830-type stock market, I think that's actually easier in many ways to convey how that functions. It's Here's the thing, though, right? The stock market in an 1830-type game is part of the playing space, and you have to... And I think in 1846... It's just a scoreboard function. It's a scoreboard and a clock. And your if your active focus is on the stock market, then it's not where it should be. It's, you should be looking at the board and where you can play station tokens and how you can increase the value of your runs. Um, but what I would say is there is a degree of complexity in the how you know stock stock movement, left to right, triple, single, triple, doubles, that sort of piece. Um, I'm rambling, John. Do you think? Do you think? I feel you could probably bring me back on course. No, absolutely. So the. Um the ca- I, I absolutely agree that the calculating the revenue and the jumps and the half paying is complicated, and that tends to be where um, the most of my my assistants will come. Um, I don't tend to explain very heavily about the stock market in 1846 in my intro. I tend to talk about it in a very abstract way. So stock will go up if you're paying out, stock will go down if you sell uh, or withhold, etc. Um, and I don't tend to go into too much detail because they'll see it in action very early on. Um, and so really the only element in the stock market they need to know about to start with is the starting prices. And that's it. Um, and then when they actually have a couple of ORs, they will see, they'll, I will basically list their options. So you can have this much money to yourself and you're paying everyone else this much or you're keeping half of it and then paying out on this much, or you're withholding it. And I tend to lib, um, labor that point um, quite a few times. Um, obviously, I try and gauge it to how quickly they're getting it, but I try and gauge it. Um, so I try and labor that point um, a couple of, for the first couple of ORs, and I tend to take over at that point and say, say if they run a route and it's just terrible route and there's a so much better one, I say, well, why don't you try this one? And then you get another $20, $30. Um, and if you do it this way, that's what you're going to do. And actually, then they think they get the impression that actually they're doing better by listening to me, which they are. Um, and that tends to reinforce that help element. And I think you've just labelled on uh, landed on our last point I'd like to make, which is the trains in this which skip stops and the general length of the routes you're calculating. By the end of the game, the route optimization can be quite intense. And you can walk, even an experienced player can walk away from this quite tired with the calculations you're having to do to get optimal value. Um, some other games have structurally simpler routes, shorter routes, or lower paying routes that just make the, the, the numbers you're working with a bit easier and make that aspect of it more simple. Um, 1846 for a learning game, <laughs> you're stra- you know you're running trains that do quite strange, strange things. 
let's say strange, that's a, that's a word, do quite strange things, and they're doing quite a lot of it. Um, so, there's a, by example, there's a world of difference between calculating a diesel and a 7.8. Even though the route might only be 10 long, a 7.8, you have to make decisions about what you include and what you don't. With a diesel, you just count all the numbers. Computationally, uh, that's quite a different challenge for a new player. Um, absolutely. I actually tend to um, not encourage route optimization to the nth degree at this point. So my, my typical way of finishing a teaching game of 1846 is once everyone's at share value and once pretty much all of the main upgrades are done and people are just adding $10 here, $10 there to their runs, I tend to say, let's call it here. We'll, we will calculate on paper or iPad or whatever the last two hours unless you really, really want to do a tile lay or two tile lays or whatever. And then if they do, just let them do it. Then tot up and then see who wins. Because actually the time you're wasting, usually that last kind of couple of bits is probably an hour, um, maybe even longer, and massively mentally fatiguing. I absolutely agree. And actually, I, see you've played, I see you've played with my wife then, because that is normally an hour and massively mentally fatiguing. But I'm sorry, I'll talk <laughs> um, And so then the... Um, so I tend, to, I tend to truncate that, and actually that's how I probably usually play most of my 18xx, because I don't tend to be that competitive. Um, I enjoy winning, um, but I'm enjoying the game, and I enjoy the people more. And I think um, often that last hour of... Um, minutiae um, and kind of eking every little bit out of every route and recalculating every route every turn for the next four ORs just does make me really just really drags um, I, re- I respectfully my... disagree so I respect I respectfully no disagree. sure sure <laughs> um, and the, re- the reason I respectfully disagree yeah. is people derive their fun in different ways right Absolutely. some people are naturally optimizers and they like to tune every last piece of performance out or once they're a couple of games in being competitive like that really matters to them so what I would say is this I agree with the premise that with new players just um, for want of a better term, calculating out the last couple of ORs is fine because you know that realistically they just want to see their performance and maybe they've hit mental limit. They've stopped. They've out. Sorry, just hit my headphones. Um, they stopped enjoying it, which is cool. Um, but I think the thing you I want to label on the bit you said. There's the consent piece, right? If you say we are calculating this out and we are doing it because it is the best way, that can that can put somebody off as much as it warms yeah, them up sure. to it. So so giving them the agency to say to no you know you know what john i actually am happy to invest the next half an hour 40 minutes yeah. doing a couple of tile lays here yeah. and there to get my best performance so i'm interested in seeing what that looks like is key i agree with you in principle but i've had games where i've kind of think well i can affect the game state and the host or whoever says no we haven't got time and we're going to calculate it out and to me i feel like i've wasted you know okay sure i've no, saved sure. the last I've, I've saved the last hour but i've wasted the last three yeah. So, you know, it, it looks like very personal. I just want to say that there's more, just, you know, to counter John's point, there's more than one view on this. And well, there's no to, right view, I guess. To kind of consider that, um, to con- continue that discussion, the um, my only thought, particularly 1846, you can probably argue other titles that it's not true for. 46, because that final game state, every upgrade you're making is improving, usually improving, not just your company, but your competitors' companies the gain you're making 
is negligible. And that's why I tend to call it at that point. Um, but maybe you're going to argue against that. Two words, two words, John. Station tokens. Oh no, absolutely. That, but yeah, that's that's where that's where the light, that's where the late game major shifts come. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. Sure. This is why I think your general recommendation for teaching is absolutely valid, right? Because new players have either left their companies destitute, no money in the coffers, and they're not going to be placing a station token, so that weapon's not available to them. But with more experienced players, or maybe ones that have just clocked it and gone, do you know what? Actually, I've kept this two hundred back, and I'm going to do this thing in the last few ORs to hurt people. <laughs> that's why I would look at their board you've got to look at the board state right you've got to make a call and go you know what there is no money in the coffers there's no tiles being laid or it's just minor upgrades call it um, or more to point propose calling it yeah. but if there's money in the coffers for station tokens then some people are a lot smarter than us and well uh, lots of people are a lot I'm smarter sure. than us I'm sure yeah. <laughs> but, and may pick this up on first play and they'll be like oh darn it I want to place that token to cut the value yeah. but I feel too socially awkward to say no to teacher yeah. you know they say yeah, you know true. and so this, like I say, I think it's a it's a nuanced thing, and I think the other thing is we're all human, right? We're not going to get it right every time, and we're all, I think it's important to remember we're trying our best. And you know, I think that's a this is, I've, I've learned something from this conversation, certainly in terms of improving my approach. So hopefully Absolutely. that was some input to you there. Mm. So let's go on to eighteen thirty six junior, the second title we're using in this podcast to to nominate as a potential teaching title. I appreciate the classic reference is normally eighteen eighty nine as a good learning game. I personally have less experience with teaching 1889, so I landed with 1836 Junior because I have recent experience teaching it and therefore the memory is quite fresh. Also, it pitches itself in a similar sort of area, right? It pitches itself as an 18xx mini game based on the 1830 rule set. Uh, sound familiar? So, why would I suggest 1830, 1836? It's very much the 1830 rules plus a few modifiers to make it more suitable for beginners, to try and take the harsh edges off. At least that's the design intent. Um, As such, most of the rules are applicable to a wide set of games in the genre. There's minimal chrome, and by that I specifically mean there's only six privates, and they're pretty obvious in what they do. They're pretty direct. Um, There's very little confusion in their function. It's a shorter runtime. It's reliably completed in about an hour to an hour and a half less than our eight, our instances of 1846 in my experience that can take five and a half six hours with a new player especially with those um, complex end game routing optimizations we discussed earlier if you're not taking the express route and finishing the game and this reliably finishes in under four hours whatever way you cut it it's a reasonably small map and as such it's possible for a player not to to, to comprehend the whole thing at a glance one of the main reasons I tried leading with this title, and still recommend it for some folks, is that it's in, it's impressive how it exposes the points of interaction. Although there's some, like I say, some moderators specifically, well, let's, let's talk about that moderator quickly. One of the core tweaks of this is that it's only possible for a company to buy a single train of a given number from the supply a turn. Which means that functionally, if there's a pile of threes and you're in the middle of them, you're only buying one free. So you can't single-handedly drive to train rush with a flush company. If you are buying the last three, you may buy the first four, which gives the title a little bit of bite. You know, there's a little bit of watching the train pool to work out, do I want that free or am I exposing the opportunity for someone else to rust the twos for argument's sake? 
Another positive, it incentivizes the players to be very mindful of the map and the geography of the map. There's some choke points on there. And one of the off-board scoring uh, multipliers, for want of a better term, is actualized through having trains run through multiple of your station tokens. So it's quite nice to encourage the player to look at the map first and foremost and build strong routes. But I could be drawing their attention away from the stock market. Going back to the thing that I, I particularly... Well, the, the, probably the main reason, however, I floated this as a training option. If you are looking to impress someone with the possibilities of what 18xx can do in terms of the raw, brutal interactions, the things like companies swinging between players, or um, stock market uh, stock values going down substantially when people uh, liquidate themselves to start their own thing, this game allows you to do that. There are no governors that reduce stock movements. And there are there's very little there's very uh, there should be very little attachment to companies in this game. Companies are quite fluid in their ownership. The game I played with my friend Phil, um, sorry Pill. Oh god, that anonymity. That, that uh, yeah, never mind. The black company in that game must have been held by every. In fact, it was held by every player in the game and landed on Phil about three times due to various dump scenarios. So, I, I think that's a positive. But I also think. Depending on your audience, it can be a negative. Uh, John, do you have any experience of uh, of walking through eighteen thirty alikes with with newer players, or so? Maybe maybe players, maybe not a first game experience, but a second game experience in your group with uh, guys and gals playing eighteen thirty titles. I think if you anything that's an eighteen thirty derivative will be pretty relevant here. Um, it can be a bit of a shock coming from eighteen forty six. Absolutely, um, I think the. I think there's a certain expectation that the 1830 set um, and kind of branch are going to be more brutal. And I think I'm not sure if the train rush being stifled in this manner um, actually does really what it's supposed to do. Usually I find, um, apart from early in the game when you're maybe wanting to buy four twos for a quick income um kind of boost um you usually only buy one or two trains anyway usually um and i so i don't think the stifled train necessarily maybe does what it's supposed to do um i think the only game i've played with um a train rush stifled like stifled in this in this way um is 18 florida and that that very much feels like you're being restricted by it and every time you want to buy the next train um, you just can't and it, I think it actually almost slows the game down a little bit um, it does obviously mean that you're not going to end up in bankruptcy as likely um, but I think it almost loses some of that uh, 18xx and I suppose if you want to show the brutality of 18xx then maybe you need to uh, just go for an eight, uh, just 1830 vanilla yeah, I think you're right. Um, it doesn't slow. It, it doesn't take it. Um, it it slow, does slow the cadence down throughout the game. It changes the nature of the train rushes. It tends to be people are now slowly considering whether buying that that middle that middle poison train is worth it. And as such, if you have a table of players that refuse to buy it, it really slows the cadence, and you end up spending longer with the two and the three and the lower number trains. 
here's the thing, I don't think that's a bad thing for a learner because it, enc- I guess it encourages the development of those root building skills, right? They're playing with the two trains for longer, so doing, do, so learning the two-stop calculation and what that looks like for a longer period. And the three trains last a bit longer, so they're doing that for a bit longer. I get what you say about it. That is a thing where it doesn't expose 1830 in all its glory. I liken it to, I guess, if I was going to compare the two, right, I liken 1846 to a nice stopwatch with a metal back that works really nicely and it's, and it's got holds good time versus Big Ben with all the gears exposed and you can stick your arm in there and have it crush the dust, but one of them's more impressive and the and is you know and will wow can potentially wow you more if you're into that sort of thing. I would say that despite the lack of a train rush, when you see the stock movements and the swings on that and how destructive that can be to a player, well, I say destructive, yeah, that's, yeah, destructive's fair, and certainly shocking to a player who has got no expectation of a scoreboard operating that way, right, where I can literally directly tear down your assets, not via, not, you know, via a, single, a single move, I sell five of your things, bump, you're now dropped down um, on the side of a shelf. Then, yeah, you know, I, I still think that's reasonably shocking, and I think you need to be mindful that your audience can take that. I certainly... I mentioned Phil, uh, one of the players. There's a guy, another guy I taught who, like I say, said to us after to, after playing, and I'll admit it wasn't my finest hour. Said to us after playing, "Oh, you, you know, you could have held back a bit and uh, not hurt me quite as much, and I would have had a better time, and I would have had more fun with it." To which I thought, "This is the wrong title for you because to learn with, not the wrong, not the wrong genre, the, but the wrong title to learn with." It wasn't his learning style, right? He wanted to play with a train set, in my opinion. He wanted to play with a train set for longer and have more fun laying stuff. And the the interaction between players hurting each other, he wasn't that interested in at that stage. And I get that. That's reasonable. I think you, if you're going to use 1836 as a title, and I think we've drifted into the cons, and that's fine. It's natural. Um, if you're going to use 1836 Junior as a title, irrespective of it pitching itself as a mini game and a potential learning title, it's still quite rough. Um, John's anything I'm saying there resonating with you? It, it certainly is. Um, I think I don't think it's necessarily a bad a bad thing that um, this game has teeth, and I think there's definitely going to be a place for it. And actually, the fact that it's got teeth makes me, um, as a kind of a player who's played a few titles now, interested to play it because I want to see how it compares um, to other uh, entry level games. Um, I I wonder if maybe. Uh, another tip to teaching this genre is have a conversation about what kind of games that person likes and we all elements in certain games they really don't like so this this guy not liking um having so much of his stuff destroyed uh, when he's learning the game and i think that maybe is a good a good discussion to have before you decide which title to play and i just wondered if that might have um, being a better, I don't know if you've got 46 yourself, so that might not have been an, even been an option. But um, if you'd had that conversation before you decided on the title, maybe you'd have picked a different title. I don't know. Uh, maybe um, I could have borrowed 1846. It's one that I've put off buying because so many people around me have it. Um, hence, hence you're correct. I, st- I could have I could have used it. Uh, I think there's an issue here though, right? It's the oh, um, was it physician uh, physician heal thyself thing. The guy I'm talking about is a pretty decent player of games and likes hostile interaction games to the point of virtually being a bit of a troll and I don't mean that in a nasty way you know if there's if he's got an option where he can interact with people in any way shape or form he'll choose that so I think if I said to him yeah do you want to play the game that where we can really uh, you know we can really 
knock e- knock each other about a bit. I think he'd have picked it. I don't. I think it's strange. There's very few games, and this is for me. This is a positive. There's very few games where you can interact with each other so um, powerfully as you can over the over an 18xx table. But I agree with you. In principle, that would work. I think to a certain extent, maybe maybe you've got to make that judgment externally as well where you can you can see how well people take being beaten perhaps i don't know because the, the way you take a beating in 1830 type titles and the way you take it in 1846 feels very different the 1846 beating feels like an efficiency race where someone outperformed me um in a kind of like it looks like you know i'm not going to saw it multiplayer solitaire that's insulting to 18xx but it feels if, if it's if everything's a spectrum it's more at that end of it Whereas in 1836, it feels like you've just been stabbing each other in a phone booth. And for the record, True. you're absolutely right. There's something in this, in my opinion, to call it a learning game. I'm probably doing it a, dis, a disservice. There, I, it still holds an interest for me. I'd play it another 10 times. No problem at all. Oh, br- brutal words. Um, oh, yeah. I would love to. I think I might have to come and visit and um, play this with you. Um, I wondered with your, um, you said that uh, 1846 is an efficiency race. I don't. I don't disagree with that. Um, I think one of the maybe cons of 1830-style games is sometimes you lose, um, especially with the higher numbers, when you get to kind of the five- and the six-player game kind of um, size. And as a new player, and even as a kind of a new newer player like myself, you don't always know what you did wrong or what other people were doing right more than you it's not necessarily as opaque as you maybe expect from a teaching game and then that might just be another either um, thing to be aware of as a teacher and to try and maybe explain what's going on because there's there's quite a lot of subtlety especially in the 1830 stock market um, style manipulation that after having played a significant number of games online I'm just starting to see, um, but to see it and to do it is a very different thing. I agree. Um, I I agree. I I, I wanted to hop in on one point since you mentioned the stock market there, John. The 1830 stock market, it's one of those things that's easy to operate, hard to, uh, not impossible, but difficult to master, right? One of the things I was going to compare and contrast this to was that we talk about the complexity of calculating, st- even though it's a two D, one D or two D stock market. The um, no, one D stock market on um, on eighteen forty six. It's actually hard to calculate stock movements because of the old half dividends. Now I've got to calculate whether that's a single jump, a double jump, a backwards hop, whatever. You've got that is actually more difficult to calculate than the movements in this. This is very simple. You pay, you go forwards. You don't pay, you go back. At the end of the share round, whoever's teaching it probably does the bits around shares moving up and down. So um, I think that, but that, the fact it's easy to operate doesn't mean it's easy to master. I agree with you. And I think that's where the debrief comes in after the game, right? If you play a shorter one, you or any of them, you should probably budget time to have a half hour chat afterwards where you can be asked questions, where you can offer unsolicited, I mean, solicited advice obviously <laughs> to help people understand where things happen in the game not necessarily point out where they point out where they played well as well right we want to you know it's, it's, it's the old it's the old good news sandwich approach where you give them the bad news in between two slices of good news um and if you focus on what people are doing right then they'll to a certain extent they'll gravitate to they'll work out themselves what they've done wrong to a certain extent if they're suitably invested 
and you give them the tools to and to the tools and lenses to look at their own performance through. The um, I'm going to say now I'm going to go on to some I'm going to explicitly go on to some cons. Okay, the flip side of 1830 with its simple stock market, sim- simpler stock market in my view, in terms of operation if not um, depth, is these prices for stock. And this is something that I've found players getting caught out with, not necessarily catastrophically, but kind of the, oh yeah, oh, uh, 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 I didn't realise that, even though it's like the third time it's happened. 1836 substitutes the unusual stock movements of 1846 with the IPO pricing and the market pricing for shares and where you buy them from and it dictates the price and when you sell them, you get price at B and when you buy them from there, you get price B. That is actually a significant hurdle for players because they're used to think they're used to a single entity having a single price from other games. You know, the the, the world always costs you five, and if you sell the steel, you always get two. Not only are you throwing dynamic pricing into this, you're throwing two pricing options: a fixed price option that's that's time limited, and a dynamic pricing that's market limited. Um, I will admit that's one I'm still trying to refine my teach for, but it's certainly an area where I focus and make sure that the student, for want of a better term, has latched onto, and I will keep reminding them throughout play, if they've got an option of buying from two, reminding them what their options are and the prices for the respective options. The other thing I want to talk to in terms of negatives is the I mentioned previously about the station tokens being a point of focus and encouraging the players to deconstruct the board a little bit, if you will, in terms of routing. This map has, and this is a good, good, great thing for expert players, for want of a better term, or experienced players, this map has choke points, and as such, you can inadvertently, two new players could inadvertently hurt each other, placing tokens that benefited themselves alone. Okay, I could place tokens that create me an off-board route with the value multiplier that inadvertently chops off another player from getting to Amsterdam, the highest revenue spot on the board, and there would be no malice on my part whatsoever. Now, if two new players can do that to each other, which I've observed, you can imagine what a what an experienced player can do to a new to a new player. And hopping back to our 1846 discussion, where I felt that there were constructive things an experienced player could do in lieu of ideal play, I don't actually feel like 1836 provides you with that breadth of options. You're kind of either playing to win or you're not playing at all. Um, I tried an approach where I warned the, the, the learner what horrible things I could do to them next round and gave them some advice on what they could do to avoid it. They took that as a statement that I wasn't going to do it. Then, you know, three stock rounds later where they haven't defended a presidency, what the heck are you going to do? At some stage, you've got to do the bad thing to instruct that the bad thing is culturally acceptable inside the game you're playing. I, I guess, you, hopefully, John, you can see that I'm not a bad person and that's a, <laughs> that's a reasonable approach. No, not at all. I've, I have actually been guilty of dumping a company on a new player. Um, it was explained the process, and I think it wasn't the worst dumping because it did actually have a permanent train. The only problem is that permanent train, that five that was on there, because of the tokens was probably only a three but it happened it was a permanent train i just didn't have the time to shuffle it about and it wasn't earning me enough and instead of um keeping a a a company that's only gonna stay its own stock value i dumped it on my uh new on one of the new players as a kind of i did it a little bit as a learning because no one on the table had seen a company being dumped and so it was a little bit of a setup in that sense. And I did talk about it and I talked about kind of 
how it was a it was a very as a, as dumping goes it was fairly gentle the company didn't have any money in it but at least it had a train and it wasn't going to make him go bankrupt or anything like that but it wasn't a company to keep hold of uh, it also shamefully won me the game uh, by doing that but anyway and actually he I saw him at the expo um, and actually he was in the middle of purchasing 1846 so I don't think it was a damaging move and I think it was actually probably something that really I mean obviously we kind of all had a bit of a joke about it at, at the time and we kind of he's obviously clearly interested in 18xx and we're hopefully going to be meeting soon um in the local group to play again so i don't think i've put him off uh playing again so that's that's encouraging okay i'm going to talk to the last couple of points then about this and then we can close out on some overall thoughts on like using 1830 as a teaching title less structured stuff i say 1830 1830 types in 1836 Jr., structurally weaker companies feature, um, ones that are not so good in the early game, ones that are only there maybe for you to get some money into another company you want to run. That they, They're there, and it's perfectly possible for a new player to latch onto them by trying to found the company. It's only meant to be running concert with, let's say, the lime green company at the north of the map. It's only meant to be running concert with the red company that runs out of Amsterdam. And if you run the lime green company in isolation... It's structurally pretty rotten. Um, it's, it's not there for that. And then because of the snowball effect in this game, where if you earn money early on, you can buy more shares, and therefore you get more money, therefore you do more stuff. Well, the reverse is true, right? If you start a company that earns no money at the start, you're just there at the back with a begging bowl, getting nothing. That's an, that's an issue, and I think it's one that, um, again, John's great tip of talking people through their options helps with. If you make sure people are absolutely aware, well, okay, here's the companies you can float, and here's how they're positioned on this map. Sure, you're taking away some of the pleasure, for want of a better term, of unpacking a game for themselves. But let's be realistic, on someone's first game of 18xx, they're not unpacking anything but the mechanics. So, you know, talking to the high strategy of a specific setup at one more point, then discovering that them by themselves isn't going to happen for a number of plays. So accelerate it. The first, le- the first learning games are right off in terms of that sort of learning anyway, I think. Last thing I want to talk to, I sort of mentioned it very briefly and said I'd cycle back to it when we came to the negatives. The privates on this are pretty soft. It's obvious what they do, but for me, they lack the character to really give direction. So we talked to some of the interesting privates in 1846 where you have a little mini rail company that um, runs near one of the bigger major companies and therefore, yeah, that gives me some steer. I should float that major company. With this, none of them feel like that to me. They're quite um, as instructive, for want of a better term. Bar the ones that are absolutely, you get two shares of this company, that's the one you're running. And when you couple that to a waterfall auction, which is probably one of the most confusing forms of auction for a Euro player, because it looks like nothing else you'll ever see, sure, we're used to them because of the history and having had to, you know, having to practice them. But I still can't quite work out the consequences of where things land because I don't have the practice you do, John, with your online play. So for someone who's not played the genre before, that waterfall auction, they might as well be looking at geese entrails and decide and trying to tell what the weather forecast is going to be tomorrow. So, so when, when you have that, and also when you have that kind of that, and the classic 1830 private that gives you a share in a certain company and, you know, the president's share costs a fortune and you are running it to a trains purchased, well, when that lands on a new player, that creates a bit of a sticky wicket. Yeah, I, I totally see that. The, I suppose that's one of the maybe advantages of, 18, um, of 1889, which is another um, 1830 
kind of uh, spin-off and it's also it's kind of seen as very good for beginner players that actually has a beginner variant where you uh, lighten up the tight the the tiles and you also just use the private companies just for their revenue and I wondered if um, 1836 junior could do, could do that uh, in kind of simplify um, some of the privates and you just have them as revenue and you just have a few a smaller number maybe one per player or something like that I don't know um, the the one of the advantages of 1830 the classic is um, the privates do they heavily guide you to what you really want to be doing when you whichever one you get um, and so you obviously if you have the BNO you're going to probably likely vote the BNO if you get the um, Camden and Amboy I think it's called where you get the stock of the Pennsylvania for free you're probably going to be floating that um, the Mohawk and something is probably going to be floating the New York Central and so they really do tie into some companies that kind of give you a bit of guidance and a bit of push to see, which companies are good we're to start there. We're, we're inadvertently disagreeing there John you see uh, I, the, the 1836 privates are clones of the 1830 privates they've got oh, an so I, I disagree with the amount of steer. They provide a brand new player. I think you may be looking at it from the lens of someone who came no, to 1830 sure. after playing other games. No, Where my experience with a brand new player and recently is they just look at them and the ones that give you shares, sure, fine. But it, uh, in 1836, one, the, one, the ones that gives you a share in a company in the bottom right-hand side of the map, there's, there's, t- there's a nuance to when you actually float that company. Yeah. Right. So the one that gives you the president's share, you kind of need to do that straight away. You've paid a fortune for it. You need to actualize that value back. The one that just gives you a single share and gives you like bumper payoff in the um, ORs anyway. There's a time. There's a right time to float that company. It's not necessarily an out of the gates company. Another reason I don't believe the privates are necessarily providing that useful information to a beginner is some of the cues around reservations are somewhat misleading. So that example I provided earlier where the Lime Green company started in the north was floated early and derived very little value for the player who founded it. Well, they did that because they felt hostage to the reservation that was associated with the private they won that allowed them to get a free stroke discount tile uh, through south to Amsterdam. All they saw was the private said, this area is important to me and therefore ignored the fact that the Lime Green Company has a, a peak value of 10 on its home station, meaning it's a bad bet to start early when you're going to have to punch cross-country to get any more value in. There's a reservation in 1836 associated with the privates, and there's some nuance to when you convert that, or whether you even pay attention to it at all. Um, a bit like the 1830 privates, actually, Two of them you could arguably just use for their um, player credit value when you buy them into the company and ignore their function in a lot of scenarios. And that's reasonably advanced thinking for someone who's never played one of these games before. A bit like Columbo, I'm going to say just one more thing. Uh, I should mention the tile laying rules for both 1836 and 1846 at this point as we've failed to mention them. So with 1846, the tile laying rules... uh, are actually more complicated. You have to pay $20 minimum to lay a tile. You may lay one or two if you choose to do so. If you lay a second tile, it must be a lay, not an upgrade. Um, The $20 minimum cost is a minimum, and if there's a printed cost on the board, then that supersedes it. But don't forget, those costs are only relevant if you're crossing a boundary for the case of certain rivers or 
if you touched a hex at all in the case of mountains versus 1836 much lighter set of rules for you may lay one tile a turn full stop if there is a printed cost on the board you must pay it now the 1836 tile set is less generous there's there's fewer tiles available there's no it is with benzene for the yellow tile set there's fewer t- um, city tiles full stop so it's possible to get choked out on those there's some strange tiles that upgrade in value but don't upgrade in station count long story short with the 1836 tile set although the rules are simpler and there's less integration of treasury management to your tile lane decisions you're actually picking from a much tighter pool of tiles making the decision itself more important in the context of the title there's fewer alternative options if you get it wrong and the title the tile you're aiming for could absolutely become unavailable so yeah i personally like the um the depth to complexity ratio on 8036 for laying tiles but i will admit it's also part of what lends the title its sharp edges i'll conclude on 1836 then and before we conclude the podcast which i'm pretty darn happy with i think it's a great game full stop if you're going to use it as a learning game then to borrow uh, some chat from uh, my friend john then yeah, probably your audience probably needs to have experience and an appetite for heavy economic Euro games with gross amounts of, inter- of uh, interaction, such as splotter titles. Okay, if they like food chain magnate and they can accept having their you know their entire um, customer base ripped from asunder from them and laugh afterwards, then they'll probably enjoy seeing the open gearing on this operating. If they prefer a more, well, not not prefer, maybe if they their experiences around the more solitary experiences or softer types of Euro interactions, then maybe take them down 1846 and see how they go. Of course, maybe you try non-train titles. That's something we've discussed as well. I say non-train titles. Non-18XX titles. There's, there's plenty of primer games out there, such as Mini Rails, North American Rail- Railways, um, or any uh, some of the winsome stuff like Chicago Express, which you can play, ha- teach the concepts we discussed that are challenging. Teach those concepts. See if people like those concepts. See if people like the you know the root building aspects of train games, the uh, shareholding aspects of train games, without someone having to commit five hours, and where they mess up in you know at minutes thirty six and they have to live with a mistake for the next four and a half hours. John, do you have any thoughts? No, I think you've you've pretty much said said everything. Um, I've had a great time um, recording this and discussing kind of my approach and kind of what I've been learning over these last couple of months. And I think I'm just eager to get more games in and teach more people. John, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. I would say that I'm going to have one one sign off message that ties into what you just said. As a as someone instructing this stuff. I consider us carrying on learning to improve how we deliver the rules to be uh, to be a, it's an ongoing exercise right and um, hopefully I've well I've learned something from the podcast talking to John and I'm, John may have learned something from me who knows and I'm hoping you, someone that you and your audience have uh, picked something up maybe or at least given yourself cause of thought so thank you very much for joining us so it's a bye from me and bye from me right cheerio